Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Are you familiar with Sooty Terns? It's an interesting seabird species with mysterious travels. In this week's show, Erica Zambello speaks with Dr. Ryan Huang about a decades-long research study on Sooty Terns in the Dry Tortugas. After they nest in the spring, where do they go? What do they eat? What will they face in the future? We also spend a little time with Becky Lomax, author of Moon USA National Parks, The Complete Guide to All 59 Parks, and take a look at Horseshoe Bend National Military Park in Alabama. Erica Zambello, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Ryan Huang, who recently earned his PhD in ecology from Duke University. And Ryan and I have known each other for years and years and years. We met when he was my TA when I was getting my master's degree at Duke University. And since then, we've become friends, we go birding together, we work um, on different communications projects together, and I'm just so excited that this worked out that we could talk about your, your research today. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Erica. It's always a pleasure hanging out with you and chatting with you. So when did you first become interested in conservation biology and ecology as a career? So it's always been really funny is that I've always had a connection with the environment for as long as I remember. Some of my earliest memories as a kid was kind of going down to a nearby golf course and they had a, one of these little ponds as like a water hazard. And we used to call it the frog pond. And my brothers and I would always go down there and catch whatever we can. And that was the best way to say, uh, spend the summers is just being our own little naturalists, going around the woods, going around and seeing what there is around. And I always loved animals, always loved the environment and try to figure out how you kind of make a career out of that. And there's been a lot of twists and turns. And at one point I was becoming really interested in kind of primate social psychology during undergraduate. Uh, but then I took a study abroad course to South Africa, you know, lived in the, you know, the Kruger National Park, learned a lot about conservation biology. I remember talking to some of these other kind of environmental minded folks. And I was talking about some of the stuff I was studying in these labs, looking at primate social dynamics. And one of uh, this other guy kind of turned to me and said, you know, I was like, this is all nice and great, but what, what do you kind of do if, these primates aren't found in the wild anymore, right? And that's where I really started thinking about the fact that conservation is a much kind of higher priority for me, is that there's a lot of time for us to understand, you know, how humans socialize and develop and some of the intricacies of all these other sciences, but conservation is a bit of an urgency. This is our planet. I really do believe we need to act on fixing it now so that we can best preserve and study these other things in the future. It's so funny that you say that a frog pond sparked your interest in nature because me as well. We had a frog pond always growing up, even when we switched houses, and um, that was a big instigator for me to feel comfortable getting wet and dirty and exploring different uh, species. You and I are also both from New England, so that's something we share, but you're mostly doing your research in tropical systems. Is that something you feel like it was so different from what you grew up with, you became enamored with it? Or how did you make the switch from, you know, northern temperate forests of Connecticut to tropical systems? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, there's always something kind of 
exciting about the exotic animals and species. My family has always really been a big kind of world traveling group. My first solo international trip was to Australia when I was 16 years old. For a summer, I wanted to kind of go study echidnas and guanas. And I've always kind of been bit by the travel bug. It's always nice seeing other cool ecosystems, other cultures, other, you know, species. And there's too many cool things in this planet for me to stay. <laughs> Not just, enough time. <laughs> just, well, yeah, exactly. Just, I can't keep going back to the same place just because there's something else over the horizon that I need to see. Yeah, I totally understand. And so speaking of that sort of travel and um, learning about conservation. So one of the courses that you TA'd for me was a spring break field trip to the Dry Tortugas National Park, which is for people who aren't aware right off of Key West. It's in southern, southern, southern Florida. Yeah, you just you keep driving down <laughs> Route 1 until you all get down Key West and you hit the water and you just keep going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you take a ferry, a plane, however you can get out there. Yeah. And um, our goal for that spring break class was to band sooty terns, which is a really beautiful black and white seabird, and really contribute to this decades-long research project about this very particular bird species. And so I remember for me, what was amazing about being down there, beyond the fact that it's gorgeous water, this crazy large historic brick structure that just juts up in the middle of nowhere. It's the largest masonry project in America. Yeah, and it's just on this teeny tiny little island, so that looks crazy. But also, we went, you know, in the spring breeding season, and there were more birds than I've probably ever seen in one place. So that was my first impression, but I was just curious, what was it like for you the first time you set foot on dry tortugas to study the terns? It was uh, really pretty cool because you're right, this, this Fort Jefferson is, you know, this big masonry uh, structure that was kind of built as a naval port in the area. It's, it's just so striking. You kind of see it from miles out as you're approaching on the ferry. And the Tartartugas is one of the coolest places because it does such an awesome job of melding both the historical and the natural resources together. You're right, you have this giant bird colony right kind of on one of these keys, right next to one of the largest, you know, brick structures you've ever seen. It's kind of absolutely awe-inspiring to see just the scale of both of these things together. And I know a lot of tourists kind of come, spend the day, tour around, kind of see things and kind of get bored, but I'm always finding cool new things around the island that always makes me want to come back. And uh, I've never quite lost that first sense of awe that I had when I first saw the Dry Tortugas. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's definitely one of the most beautiful national parks I've ever seen. And so can you give us a brief synopsis of this research project that's been going on? Yeah, so uh, right now we've been working, you know, this banding trip that you've been talking about is one of the longest continuous uh, banding data sets we have, you know, ever across the world for any of these bird species. It originally was started by a couple that were kind of naturalists and really interested in, you know, studying some more of these birds, you know, these these birds that were such kind of iconic to these areas. And they kind of started putting some bands uh, on these birds to start tracking population numbers in the 1930s. And they stopped for a couple of years during the war, but then uh, World War II, that is, and then picked back up uh, late 50s, early 60s. And ever since then, they had a very, you know, with the National Park Service, they've had a very concerted effort to band as many birds as they could. So they were banding thousands of birds every year 
in throughout the 1950s and 60s. And towards the 80s, they ended up switching to um, a little bit more of a targeted system where they'd only be banning a few dozens a couple of years in a more you know, methodical manner. But the National Park Service has really been interested in continuing to monitor and keep this going as part of their national inventory and monitoring process. And with, you know, with all this data and all the birds we've been, you know, capturing and recording throughout these decades, we get a much better idea of kind of the, the populations of birds, how the number of birds changes throughout the years, um, and what that could possibly mean for ocean health. So you, in addition to participating in this decades-long study, you also took it a step further for your PhD work, and you did a little bit more work looking at individual sooty terns, not only on the island, but also when they left. So how did you do that? Yeah, so the thing about seabirds that has kind of plagued scientists for a while until just recent modern technological advances is that when a bird leaves the island, leaves the colony where they're breeding, you have no idea where it goes. It goes over the horizon. You know, and where's that? Well, you know, why are they going where they are? How long are they even going out for at a time? We just didn't know. We have no idea. So recent technological advances allow us to uh, study telemetry, the kind of the movement of individuals throughout the landscape. And there's a lot of different little devices that you can use um, depending on the size of the animal you want, um, kind of the method by which you can collect the data. And, you know, these need to be kind of small. You don't want to put a ball and chain on, you know, the equivalent of a ball and chain on some of these animals. So we used a, a little bit of a, a, a little five gram transmitter um, that kind of hooked right on the back of these birds, like a little backpack. And it had a little solar panel on it so we could charge the battery as they fly, and then they would send a little signal to, that was picked up by satellites, which would then kind of, you know, triangulate the location of the birds at any given time. So we were able to map and, and figure out where these birds were actually going during the, you know, over the ocean. And what's really interesting, too, is that the sooty terns, you know, they don't really tr like to get wet. They don't sit on the top of the ocean like other gulls might. Not only do they not sit on the water, but they also don't come back to land when they're not breeding. So there's about six to nine months where these birds are just kind of disappear. You really have no idea where they went. And so by tracking some of this information, some of this telemetry data, we were able to map the migration uh, of these, you know, this population for the first time ever. And we were also able to know where they were feeding on a daily basis, you know, all sorts of kind of really interesting research was coming out of this. So I was actually still at Duke when you had put the little backpacks on them. So I remember you watching them almost as they made their their cross-ocean treks. I remember this being kind of stressful because it's hard not to become at least a little bit attached to them. How do you how do you navigate that emotional minefield? Well, I think some of my biggest stresses and concerns were the money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, these things are not uh, not cheap. They're, you know, we, I think we paid two and a half thousand dollars for each backpack. Um, wow. Yeah, and so we were only able to afford three of them at a time, and of course, one of them failed after about two weeks. So right off the bat, we lose a third of our data. And so we're really trying to keep an eye and we want to get as much of that data as possible. We were fortunate that at least one of them, we got at least a full year of data. So we were able to see where they went, went out for kind of their wintering grounds and where they came back. 
So from that information, we know that you know these birds live uh, on you know they breed on the Dry Tortugas National Park. They uh, coming in starting about January. the The birds hatch about end of February, beginning of March. They'll fledge over the next you know month or so, and then they all leave the island about June. And from the telemetry data, we know that these birds kind of they'll they may start feeding in the Gulf of Mexico move through the Caribbean, kind of along the coast of South America, off the coast of Brazil, and out to kind of the mid-Atlantic between Brazil and uh, Africa. And it seems to be that this is an area where the Amazon River is dumping out a lot of nutrients down there, and so it would make sense that there's a lot of fish congregating in these areas during kind of uh, September through December, and that these sooty terns are just kind of hanging out in the area fishing and you know getting fat before coming back to the Dr. Tugas to reproduce. We're going to take a short break to hear a message from our sponsors and then we will be right back talking to Dr. Ryan Huang about city turns. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. And we're back with Dr. Ryan Wong talking about sooty terns in Dry Tortugas National Park. So we're talking about these mass migrations that this bird makes, but can you tell us a little bit more about this bird? I mean, sooty terns aren't very big, are they? No, they're uh, about, I don't know, half a pound in weight, uh, but they are a very striking, beautiful bird. It's just kind of this black and white, very sleek, beautiful little bird. Uh, not much to say. They're very common. They're found both in the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. They are found in great numbers. They're not particularly endangered, but and they're common. They're common sight throughout kind of you know, southeast uh, coastlines along the United States. You'll find them in other countries too. These are all characteristics that make these birds a good species to study as what we call an indicator species. Now we define an indicator species as a species that is kind of representative of the environment. A really good example is frogs. Uh, frogs are often a species that if they start disappearing from 
an area where you used to see a lot of frogs, that's really a sign that there's something wrong with the environment. Now, good indicator species are ones that are fairly common, so you're easily observed. Uh, they are wide-ranging so that they are able to kind of sample different areas of the environment where humans aren't necessarily looking. And this means that if we are able to measure or detect any changes in the population of these animals, we know there's something wrong with the environment, that some, something's changing. And so, the, you know, the goal of a lot of the research has been to determine, are there changes in these sooty turn populations? And if so, what might be causing these changes? And, you know, humans are great at detecting and measuring a lot of things around the world, but we can't be everywhere at once. And so it's really key that we learned how to use different ways of measuring the environment to determine various changes. So given that sooty terns are an indicator species, what is the outlook for them? What would you postulate as their biggest threat? So a lot of the results of our research suggests that one of the biggest problems we were detecting is this tendency to encounter storms, a very large tropical storms such as hurricanes. So from the data we have on migration, we know that these birds are going through kind of the Caribbean, along the coast of South America, throughout the months of roughly you know, June through September. Now, you know, for those of you familiar with tropical storms, this is peak hurricane season, really. And this is going right through Hurricane Alley. So these birds are very susceptible to encountering what could be potentially lethal storms. You know, migration is already a very stressful, very taxing process. You're traveling a very long distance, not eating as much as you might be used to. And then if you're suddenly encountering a you know, huge wall of wind and rain, it's going to be very stressful on you know, the body and many, many individuals will not survive. And a lot of the research that we, you know, we're kind of looking into was the impacts of these hurricanes on sooty turns. And we find that the more frequent and more severe storms that these individuals encounter, the higher the rates of mortality, the more deaths we find. So... A really good example of a really devastating storm was in 1980, Hurricane Allen. It was a Category 5 storm that had a very, very straight pathway right through, right from the Mid-Atlantic through the Caribbean and really, and I believe made landfall kind of on the coasts of Texas, Louisiana, if I remember correctly. And this storm was really like a bowling ball down a lane for these uh, birds. And we estimated roughly maybe about half of the entire population was killed from the single storm. And most climate change models uh, right now are predicting increases in uh, the frequency and severity of kind of Category 4 and Category 5 hurricanes. And this is really concerning because given what we know about the migration of this species, that these, you know, these individuals are, have a tendency to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we're seeing changes in the currents of these large tropical storms. There's concern that these birds are going to be encountering these worse, you know, environmental conditions and that there might be some concerns for the longevity of the species or, this, or at least this population if this was to, you know, if these storms were to take a nasty turn. So let me just put the research into context. So there's two kind of threads that we're talking about here. One is that sooty terns are common, so you can use them as an indicator species of wider environmental phenomena. 
However, like you just finished uh, describing, they do have threats to their population. So as I'm sure you know, because it was plastered across social media and all media outlets, um, a recent report estimated we could lose a million species as a result of human development, pollution, and climate change. So given those two threads that I just described, where does the city turn fit into that particular bigger picture? So I'm actually going to answer your question by talking about a different species. And I think a really good example of this is the passenger pigeon. So, you know, the United States has only, you know, officially documented just a couple of different bird species that have gone extinct. The passenger pigeon being one of them. And this was a species that was, you know, kind of redefined the word numerous. Uh, they, you know, it's thought that most of the island of Manhattan was once a single large passenger pigeon colony. This is a species that it would take, you know, three or four days for a single flock to fly over the, you know, the city of Chicago. Just days for a single flock. I mean, you know, there was hunting limits that you could just fire a shotgun in the air several times and just collect however many passenger pigeons were It's almost killed. impossible to imagine. Yeah, <laughs> completely different than anything we, we would see now. And there was never any thought about regulation or any concern about population because it was so it was just so numerous, and yet this bird went extinct. Um, you know, there was a lot that we didn't know about kind of the ideas of critical thresholds that there was these minimum number of individuals that we needed before you know before the population just started becoming unsustainable. We still don't fully. I'm not sure we still fully understand how the species went extinct, but. Um, just because you see something very common doesn't mean that there isn't um, some kind of key, you know, interchanges with the environment. Uh, you know, everything is very much connected. And as we make changes in one part of the environment, we're going to see secondary tertiary effects that we don't necessarily can expect or predict. And so, you know, one of my favorite quotes about the environment uh, was from Aldo Leopold, which was um, something along the lines of, um, you know, the first step in intelligent tinkering is is keeping all the parts, right? If, you know, the entire, la- if you know, the landscape as a whole is great, then that means that all of the parts of that landscape are also great and that you don't want to lose any bits of it. Um, so we have to be very careful that as the environment changes, we're not going to be seeing, cha- you know, these other unexpected changes. Absolutely. And I'm sure that's something that you will keep in mind going forward because you just graduated with your PhD. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's very exciting. So what are you looking to study along these lines in the future? What's next in conservation biology? What's really been capturing my interest right now is kind of looking at, we've got these very fragmented, very variable landscapes. Um, You know, it's thought that, you know, over 75% of the world's forest lives, you know, lies within one or two kilometers of an edge, right? There's very, very little forest that remains on this world that's truly deep and wild. Um, And so I've been really spending a lot of time looking at the impacts of kind of the fragmentation of this landscape on the extinction risk of various species. So uh, a lot of what I'm doing is not looking, you know, not only looking at, you know, how, you know, fragmentation and deforestation is changing this extinction risk of, of various tropical species, but also what we can do to reverse that, right? If, you know, if you're going to spend, you know, very valuable, precious conservation resources on restoring some of this, you know, this forest and replanting areas, the question is, how do you prioritize, you know, which area is going to reforest or replant? You know, where are you going to create a corridor? 
if you've got a map that shows all these different fragments of, of forest and you know you've got you know endangered species living in these patches, which two patches do you reconnect in order to you know best you know make the species last and persist in the future? And it's really interesting because we can also take into account kind of land prices and you know cost of restoration effort and really get you know come up with a you know a metric that tells us what your return on investment is in you know these conservation and restoration projects how much money or you know resources do you need to spend in order to see uh, a 10% greater likelihood of persisting for the next 100 years and so i'm obviously biased as your friend but i think everything that you've talked about today is really fascinating how can other people stay up to date on your research and, and what you're studying? Uh, a lot of my work right now is being done in partnered with um, a nonprofit called Saving Species, which, uh, you know, they are a nonprofit that is aimed at buying private land, restoring it and working with local NGOs around the uh, around the globe. So we work in Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, Sumatra and uh, the key is that we are really returning certain pieces of land into the hands of local organizations, people who are on the ground, know exactly what you know needs to be done, and kind of really reconnecting some of these uh, forest patches. This is a great way to offset your carbon by buying carbon credits. If you donate to saving species, uh, then you can uh, kind of help contribute to the replanting of forests and offset your own carbon footprint. That's great. Well, I just want to thank you so much for talking to me today about study turns, your research, and also saving species, which I follow on Facebook. I think that's a great way to, to stay up to date on what they're doing. And um, just thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Erica. It was a lot of fun. This is Erica Zambello in Northwest Florida, talking about South Florida for the National Parks Traveler. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org.
There are more than a few guidebooks to help you navigate the national park system. There are some that focus on just one park at a time, some that look regionally, and some that aim to provide a thorough overview of all 59 national parks. How do they come together? How are they different? How does an author make their project stand out above the others? To try to answer those questions, we've invited Becky Lomax, whose USA National Parks, The Complete Guide to All 59, just came out to join us today. Hello, Becky. Hi, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate making time for this. So how do you make your book rise above the competition? I mean, one thing I've struggled with as a a writer with a a focus on national parks for uh, about 20 years now is is how to cover national parks differently. How to give uh, a reader a different perspective other than here are the trails you should hike, here are the lodges that you can uh, stay in and what you should expect, and here are the activities you can do. (laughs) that's a really good question actually and I would say it's a combination of a couple things one is my publisher did I think on this book did a smash bang job of including amazing photographs in it so there's a few of the chapters have my photographs in them but it's a combination of a lot of different photographers and I think that that gives people a really rich impression of the parks and especially for people that might be what I would call armchair travelers where they they love the parks they maybe traveled to them at one point maybe they're not traveling now and they just want to enjoy the park memories and see those photos so I think that's one thing that helps it and the other thing that makes this a little bit different is that, yes, I was, you know, one of the writers who put it together, but we also drew on several other Moon Travel Guide writers and used their materials for the book, especially for parks that I hadn't been to. Mm-hmm. And they write about their local parks. So we kind of have a local perspective in there for many of the parks included. It's not just what I would call a a drop-in visitor that, you know, drops into the park for a few days, runs around in circles, takes a few pictures, and grabs some information and leaves. It's it's much more intimate and much more longevity involved with the park. For instance, you know, with me, I live outside of Glacier National Park. I've worked in the park here. And so what I tell people about the park here includes a lot of stuff that I've acquired about, you know, how to do things and what to do over my years here. So it makes a difference, I think, on the presentation of the material. No, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I have written some guidebooks to the national parks and, you know, on some projects I found myself, you know, driving or flying to a, a national park and, and spending two or three days there. And, and like you said, running around and taking notes and uh, uh, maybe taking some pictures to refresh my memory because I'm not that great of a photographer to uh, assume that my photos would go into the book. But uh, certainly um, a picture can help down the road when you're you're working on writing. But yes, that that is an incredible challenge when you're looking at at um, 59 national parks strung out from the Caribbean to the Western Pacific. <laughs> That's quite a distance, yes. It really is. And um, I, I know your your um, expense budget probably didn't allow you to uh, fly to a National Park of America, Samoa. 
No, unfortunately it didn't. And I would love to go there. <laughs> I'll get there at some point. Do you feel that, that that was an impediment to bringing this book together? Because, um, you know, obviously you can write more about Glacier since it's in your backyard and, and Yellowstone since it's not too far away. And yet trying to gather the same sort of information and convey it in the same style of a park that you can't visit, but you have to do research or rely on a, a local writer, that's got to be a challenge. Yeah, it was a challenge. And, you know, <laughs> putting each of the chapters together, we kind of had a formula that here's here's what we wanted the chapters to cover. And no matter if the park was a really small park or a really huge park, we wanted them all to follow the same format. So people would know when they went to a chapter, here's how I navigate it to find what I want to find. And so it was kind of a you know, plug-in job for some of the material, like taking the works that some other moon travel guide writers had done on their national parks, plugging their material into the certain places. And then I had to go through and kind of get it all so it it kind of flowed flowed together. <laughs> and it, sure. And it, um, it made every park you know, stand out for its uniqueness. For instance, the um, each chapter, of course, starts with an introduction to that national park. And I wanted to make sure each of those introductions hit like, here are the super unique things in this park. Mm-hmm. And didn't just say, oh, there's mountains and, and rivers and, and X number of miles of hiking trails and blah, blah, blah. You know, most people, that stuff, you know, you just kind of snore through that and I wanted to just be able to target right away what was what made this park unique so it became a national park so that was kind of one of the challenges was to get you know each of those things put together and especially for you know I've been to about two-thirds of the national parks and um, so for the ones I hadn't been to that took some research and some phone calls and so forth to Mm -hmm. be able to target that do you think you'd ever be able to um, convince your publisher for subsequent additions to uh, perhaps provide a little bit more advance money so you could make personal visits to the parks that you haven't visited? <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but I did quite a few book event tours this year around the country. And every time I was near a national park, I added that onto my trips. <laughs> I would kind of go, you know, fly off and go do some book thing and then add in the nearest national park visit and go see that. So I was able to add a few more that I hadn't been to, like Shenandoah. Oh my gosh, that was really cool to go to. Yeah, it's a fun park. Yeah. And just um, to experience the history there Mm -hmm. and hike some of those trails. And uh, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Hit it right at the beginning of spring. So the flowering trees were just starting there. So that nice. was cool. Nice. You, you got to go back in uh, September, late September, early October, when the uh, the old apple orchards that uh, the homesteaders planted, the fruit comes to ripen and you can hike along a trail and, and pull an apple off a tree and have a little snack. <laughs> that sounds delightful. Now, I've been in this business writing for quite a while and um, back in, I think, 
2008 or so, there was great concern that uh, the written word was going to die because here comes this dot-com boom and the internet and everybody's going to be, you know, reading stuff online and that books would fall by the wayside. And, and indeed, some magazines um, fell by the wayside and they, they really cut back, cut back their staff and, and what they were um, buying from freelancers. Is there competition from the internet, from television programs and documentaries? Does that create a problem for the written word in national park guidebook arenas? You know, I think it does to a certain extent, but not completely. And there's a couple things operating here. One is when you get to some of our national parks, the access to internet and cell phone is negligible. I mean, there are some parks and places in some parks where there is no cell service Mm -hmm. and there is no internet. So you can't just jump on your phone and, oh, let me look this up because it doesn't work. So there's a place then for being able to take a hard copy thing along. And likewise with maps, because you can't, you know, if you don't have that cell service, you can't really get your Google Maps to work. And so having a hard copy of a map to be able to see, oh, this is how I get to this lake that I'm trying to drive to. And here's where I turn. And, oh, that's where the road turns to dirt. (laughs) and It's no longer paved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some cases, when in the national parks, when you go and try and use like Google Maps or any of those map programs, sometimes they, they're not accurate and they don't take into account seasonal road closures or, you know, due to snow or roads that are closed for other reasons. And so up in our area here, we often get people steered the wrong direction sometimes trying to go someplace because they're following what's on their computer on their phone rather than reading an actual physical map and you know calling the visitor center and saying what roads are open and that type of stuff yeah google google maps uh, has created more than a few problems for travelers in (laughs) southern utah i know and, and no doubt elsewhere around the world Although there there are some uh, some app makers out there who are figuring out ways to um, provide you with content on your smartphone without the, the need for cell service. So yes, um, they but, are doing um, that. Be, being old school, I like to have something in my hands that I can look at and dog ear and mark up and whatnot. Oh, I'm with you on that. I love the uh, I love the hard copy stuff and especially maps. I, <laughs> I maps just, are gold. They are. I just love, you know, the old topographical maps of parks. I just think are so cool. Yeah. And it's fun. If you could only visit five parks, five national parks in your lifetime, which which would they be? <laughs> That's such a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> well, pick your best, your favorite child then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Five parks and what would they be? Well, you know, I got to pick, I'd have to pick my backyard park, Glacier. Mm-hmm. I, to me, it is just, it's such a beautiful park with, you know, just the rugged scenery. But to be here and watching the glaciers melt and, you know, I can go hike to them, like go back to the same glacier uh, in two years and I notice a distinct difference. 
from like a visit two years ago. Mm-hmm. So being here and being present to watch that is really cool. I think another park I would have to put in the mix is oh, one of the Alaska parks. I guess I'd have to put Denali uh, just because it's, it's massive. And to be able to look at the, uh, you know, the tallest peak in North America is amazing. And just to be that far north and just seeing the different type of habitat, uh, the different wildlife, being able to see caribou and then wolves and all sorts of other things. Yeah, it's just, it's a wonderful park. That's two. That's (laughs) two. And, you know, I have to throw Yellowstone in the mix. Because, uh, you know, it was our first national park. It's got such phenomenal wildlife watching and then just incredible volcanic stuff going on there. It amazes me, you know, I go down there several times a year and it amazes me every time I go. So that's three. And then let's see, you know, I'm going to throw in Big Bend National Park in Texas. Yes, and I would say Big Bend in the spring. And the reason was the birds up in the mountains, the Chisos Mountains there, they're mm-hmm. insane. We went backpacking up through the Chisos Mountains, and there was it was like listening to this loud symphony the whole time because the birds were just going crazy. You know, it was nesting season and mating season and all that kind of stuff. So they were just doing their thing as loud as they could mm-hmm. and it, big band's a stopover spot yeah for a lot of the neotropical birds flying north or heading south so you know hitting it in the shoulder season is pretty cool yeah i really i like that park a lot and it's so diverse too between the santa elena canyon and the river there and then kind of the desert features and so forth it's really quite diverse one and left. One left. Oh my gosh. Ah. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. I think I want to throw in a cave. Let's throw in Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Yeah. Because you know, going underground, it's a it's another world. Did, did you go on the wild cave tour there? No. Not that oh, one. Should have. Should <laughs> I should have. <laughs> That's what I did when I visited Mammoth Cave. Had to go on the Wild Cave tour. Yeah. It just, um, y- you know, going to the, any of the cave parks is just such a unique experience to get in there. And most of the tours that I've taken, at some point, the guides turn off the lights. And so every time they do, I mean, I automatically stick my hand up in front of my face trying to see my hand and you can't see it it is dark <laughs> it is totally dark and our world you know the way we operate in our world and live with so much light that's such a unique experience to you know for that few minutes to experience total darkness it is something else that's for sure and there are some wonderful cave parks out there i've i've been to a few others uh wind cave national park and yes. the jewel, jewel cave national monument and They're incredible. They are, yeah. We've been visiting today with Becky Lomax, uh, the author of USA National Parks, The Complete Guide to All 59, uh, which just recently came out. 
and you can track it down and help plan your next adventure to a national park. Becky, thanks so much for visiting with us today. We could go on and on, and I I might want to summon you back uh, later this year to uh, talk about some other issues involving the national park since you've been out there and and sampled the, tested the field product, so to to speak. (laughs) Yes. Um, Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much, Kurt. Okay. Thank you, Becky. All right. Thank you. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Our last stop on the Alabama tour of national park sites was Horseshoe Bend National Military Park, which happened to be commemorating the 205th anniversary of the fight between Red Stick Creek Native Americans and forces led by Andrew Jackson before his stint as president. Arriving just past noon, my husband Brian and I looked over a bright green lawn to the various tents and display areas that had been set up to teach kids and adults alike about life during the early 1800s, when the battle took place. At first, it felt odd to celebrate the date of a battle that wiped out nearly a thousand Creek Native Americans and sold another 350 women and children into slavery. Taking advantage of a civil war between factions of the Creeks, who, should be noted, call themselves by a different name, American troops intervened when they saw the possibility of taking even more land, despite earlier treaties that promised this area to the Native Americans. When Andrew Jackson's troops won, and his forces included a fair number of Creek Native Americans loyal to the Americans, the rest of the Creeks were effectively scattered, some remaining in Alabama, others moving west, still others seeking refuge in Florida with the Seminoles. The battlefield commemorates just one more drop on one of the darkest stains of American history, the near annihilation of all who lived here before European settlers arrived. The festive mood of the commemoration initially clashed with my dark thoughts, So I made a beeline for the tent where women dressed as settlers, spinning flax and wool and teaching others to do the same. I love knitting, and I've really always wanted to learn how to spin. So I listened very carefully as the demonstrator explained how to use the drop spindle before handing it over for me to try. The finished yarn is wound around the bottom, while the wool that needs to be spun is held overhead in the hand. By spinning the spindle clockwise, The wool essentially winds itself, 
tensions from my fingers more or less keeping the, the, the resulting yarn the right thickness. Before I even handed it back to her, I knew I would someday order my own. Our tents displayed the pelts and food settlers and Native Americans would have gathered or hunted from the nearby Alabama forest, while still others showcased musical instruments. A volunteer started a game of stickball with the younger children, and four or five men in full uniform held rifles and set off a giant cannon at pre-scheduled intervals throughout the day. A long nature trail follows the river and stops at important sites within the battlefield. Much of the fighting occurred in a horseshoe created by the river's curves, which the Creeks thought could be a stronghold until they were attacked simultaneously from the other side of the waterway. As we walked, the noise from the festival fell away. We weren't alone on the trail, which curved through beautiful mixed forests with views of the river, but few enough people opted to walk the whole thing, so we felt like we had the whole space to ourselves. Though a driving road also connects visitors to the major sites within the park, I cannot recommend the nature trail enough. The solitude and beauty of the woods as we walked gave us time to talk about what we had just seen, to think about the tragedy of not only the Native Americans killed here, but also those forced to move later along the Trail of Tears. One number I had learned in the Small Visitor Center Museum really weighed on me. What happened to the 350 women and children? I asked. Brian had read the entire brochure, as well as additional information about the battle before we had even set foot in the park. I don't know, he replied. I still don't know, unable to find information at the park itself. 350 women and children, who arguably were just trying to escape Americans pushing south and west, disappeared into history like a puff of smoke, their identities and future shrouded in the vagaries of the past. In the book, Sign My Name to Freedom, Betty Reed Soskin writes, what gets remembered is a function of who is in the room doing the remembering. The descendants of the women and children were probably too scattered to create such a collective memory. It continued to bother me, but I also continued to appreciate the nature trail's gentle dips and turns, the woodpeckers and chickadees I stopped to photograph, the flowers dotting the path's edges. Historic and military parks often protect amazing habitats like this which is an added benefit to preservation. The trail stopped at overlooks explaining where the small village once stood, as well as where the Creek Native Americans erected a long wooden barricade to protect themselves from Andrew Jackson's forces until they were simply overwhelmed by the gunfire. Stone memorials had been erected for a fallen U.S. soldier, for the terminus of an Andrew Jackson-related route, and one standing as a recognition of the work Jackson and his troops did to end the war with the Creeks at this very battle. The overly congratulatory tone of this stone marker, erected by the U.S. Congress, though probably a long time ago, is at odds with the modern understanding of history. To be honest, this part of the park needs an upgrade, a new monument dedicated to memorializing the Creek men, women, and children who also died here. Don't get me wrong, there was violence on all sides, including raids by the Creeks that killed settlers. But the monuments as they stand seem strangely one-sided. We spent about an hour and a half on the Nature Trail Loop, returning to the visitor center and commemoration activities just as the final demonstration of rifle fire was taking place. Like the Tuskegee sites we had visited the day before, Horseshoe Bend National Battlefield opened another door of history, reminding both my husband and me of those who had lived in these Alabama woods 
in the decades after the United States was born. Visits to national battlefields, especially with a renewed focus on all sides of the conflict, create a deeper understanding of where we all come from, good and bad. So with that, Brian and I had visited all five national park sites in Alabama, coming away steeped in both history and native ecosystems of the state. If you're in the Southeast looking for a way to become acquainted with Alabama, or if you're a native Alabamian seeking to learn more about where you live and work, I highly recommend this one week swoop. From Northwest Florida, this is Erica Zambello. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought by sending comments to news at nationalparkstraveler.org. We're also always on the lookout for interesting topics to present on our podcasts. You can send your suggestions to news at nationalparkstraveler.org as well. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.